0: Good morning. Today, I'd like to follow up on what Ajahn Buddha Dasa has been saying over the last nine days. And I would like to reemphasize certain points that tend to be forgotten by Western meditators. And so I will go through and pick out some of the things that I've learned in talking to people that these things are often misunderstood or forgotten, and so I'll try to make them clear enough that you won't forget. In doing so, I'll talk about two basic areas. The first will be some of the fundamental points of the theory. I'll spend some time on that, and then the rest of this talk will discuss the basics of the practice itself, especially the first step. Now, what Ajahn Buddhadasa has been talking about, and most of also what I will say today, is for your future reference. All this stuff that has been discussed, all these sixteen steps, we don't expect you to be practicing them now. For everybody here, you're practicing step one, and don't delude yourself into thinking you're doing anything other than that. We're all practicing step one. The talking about steps two, three, four, five, and so on is for your future reference, meaning once you have become very expert at step one, then you go on to step two. And I'll be talking more about this later. Before getting into these basic points that I think need to be re-emphasized, I'd like to make a few observations about Western or modern Western meditators. These are generalizations which will apply more or less to each of us. I'm not trying to tell you what is happening inside your own mind, but I would like to point out some things that seem to be very common among the people who come to retreats at Suan Mok. I think that many of these points are things you've discovered for yourself over the last 10 days. And so my talking about them will maybe just serve to clarify them a bit. As Western meditators who come from modern Western society, we are under a certain set of disadvantages in practicing meditation. We come from a society and culture that is quite a bit different from the society in which the Buddha lived even much different than the society in which Ajahn Buddha Dasa grew up and even the society in which Ajahn Po spent his childhood. We're coming from quite a different cultural background, and it seems that this cultural background puts us under a number of disadvantages. This doesn't mean we're not able to meditate, but it seems to me useful to be aware of these disadvantages and see the influence they have on our meditation practice. One of these is that our lifestyle tends to be very complex. Things are very complicated. There is all kinds of fancy technology. The patterns of life are fast and anxious and very complicated. This is one disadvantage. Another is our culture tends to be very cerebral, very much in the head, and is often lost contact with nature. Even the nature of our own bodies, we have been able to hide it, drug it, perfume it, clothe it, and do all kinds of things which we have, which have enabled us. To live very much in our own heads and imaginations with our Sony Walkmans and things like this, our air conditioning, and are very much out of touch with nature. Also, we come from a culture that has reached great heights of material comfort and wealth. So materially, we our life is often very easy. We have lots of comforts. The struggles to survive are not very immediate. We don't do this struggling ourselves. We leave it to to poor people in places like Africa, Hong Kong, and South America. Also we have developed such a fast-paced culture where it is very easy to become addicted to excitement. This is a very easy trap we can fall into where we always need some kind of sensory excitement, something exciting to watch, something exciting to listen to, something exciting to smell, to eat, even to think about. Many of us find our, spend our whole life running from one exciting thing to another. All these various disadvantages can begin to be summarized in the fact that our culture no longer teaches self-control. Instead, it teaches indulgence. And so we have much less ability to deal with hardship or difficulties, minor aches and pains. On top of that, we Are often have, we often have very little patience. We can't sit still. We can't continue doing something for a long period of time. We always demand an immediate payoff. There must be some very quick reward for us to keep, keep going. And the last thing would be that we are coming from a culture now that is very, very specialized. Everyone has a specialty. And very few of us now have the the, ride, the wide range of knowledge and skills that used to be required of any adult human being. Fifty years ago, any adult had to know how to do so many different things, whether a male or a female. There were so many different chores that needed to be accomplished. Now, we hire other people to do all those things and we specialize in one specific thing. And just as a little joke, I'd like to summarize all these disadvantages up in the one big disadvantage of TV. The blame isn't put on TV, but the way we use television can be linked to all these other disadvantages. I'm not saying all of us are inevitably trapped within these disadvantages, but they do have a profound influence on us and have conditioned our lives in very strong ways. If we compare some of these disadvantages to the life of the Thai peasant of, say, twenty years ago, who, who almost never saw a TV, had a very simple lifestyle. It wasn't very wealthy, but there was enough food to eat, enough, enough clothing. Things moved fairly slowly, and people were very much in touch with nature. I bring this point up because sometimes I find it a bit embarrassing that here I am with um, a university degree, all kinds of I've read all kinds of books, I've traveled all over the world. I've could claim various things as accomplishments. But when it comes to just sitting quietly and watching the breath, I know I know Thai farmers who can barely read the newspaper, who can watch their breath much more easily than I. (laughs) This seems to be the way things are. Because of these disadvantages, many people now in the West seem to be appreciating the value of meditation. And so I'm bringing these up because meditation will help us to deal with some of these drawbacks of our culture and of our conditioning so that we can get control over things again at times these points i have mentioned may seem to be obstacles or distractions from meditation but meditation is probably the best way to come to terms with these things what i have said so far will now will be linked now to Some of the basic underlying points of the theory of anapanasati, which I would like to remind you of. The first is that this practice of anapanasati will develop what is called the four foundations of mindfulness. The foundation of mindfulness, that is contemplation of the body, the Gaya the foundation of mindfulness, which is contemplation of the vedana, the feelings, contemplation of the jītā, mind, and contemplation of dhamma, or truth. These are the four foundations of mindfulness. And we must, in order to fully understand life, we must establish mindfulness on these four foundations, and then develop the understanding and knowledge of these four things. The practice of anapanasati deals with all four of these foundations in a very complete and efficient way. Therefore, mindfulness of breathing is a meditation practice which can allow us to develop wisdom about all the things which we need to understand in human life. As well as the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of breathing also will train what Ajahn Buddhadasa calls the four comrades in Dhamma. These are four mental skills or mental abilities which are absolutely necessary in dealing with the experience of life. Ajahn Buddha Dasa mentioned these yesterday and pointed out their value. Today, I will just remind you that mindfulness of breathing will train, develop, and preserve the mental abilities of mindfulness, sati, wisdom in action, janya, wisdom, banya, and samadhi concentration. The next point I would like to make is to point out a distinction which we often confuse. In the, When we talk about mindfulness of breathing, we also talk about a natural evolution of the mind or of human life. This natural evolution is not the same thing as our meditation practice. These 16 steps of Anapanasati are based in 16 different objects. We take these 16 objects as the, our focus of study, but these sixteen objects in themselves arise naturally out of the natural development of the mind. The mind has must follow a certain path of progress and evolution from whatever state it is in normally up to the state that is called enlightenment. For all beings, this path is basically the same. So that is a natural evolution which needs to happen. Mindfulness of breathing is not that evolution itself. Rather, mindfulness of breathing is the study and nurturing of that evolution. As that evolution takes place on its own, or begins to take place, we use mindfulness of breathing to study it and understand it. And also, through that understanding of this, of that natural evolution, we can use mindfulness of breathing to nurture, support, and kind of nudge that evolution forward. So these are, these are closely related, but separate. People often confuse the two, and so I often hear people talking about, oh, I had, I had rapture, or I had piti, I had contentment. I must be on step five. This, and this, this is a common confusion That feeling of contentment will be arising all the time, coming and going all the time. That's part of the natural process that is taking place. But step five of the practice of mindfulness of breathing, will only start to work with that feeling of contentment or PT when when the time comes, which is after the first four steps have been fully completed. So even while we're practicing step one, there will be these feelings of, of contentment and happiness. We may even begin to be aware of impermanence in step one, but we're still on step one. We're not on step five or six or eight or thirteen. So there's the difference between what is happening naturally and what we are specifically practicing in this meditation practice. So to summarize this, on the natural side, there are these 16 objects which are which happen, these 16 things which happen naturally. And then on the, the practice side, what we actually practice is the contemplation of those 16 things, so please be clear about this. It will make it easier for you to understand what, you're, what you need to be doing. One last point about this natural evolution is that it's an evolution of the mind from cruder states of happiness to finer more subtle states of happiness that when we begin meditating our interest is in rather crude kinds of happiness, in sensual happiness. As we begin to meditate, we begin to come across more subtle and sublime levels of joy and happiness. And as the meditation practice continues, we become aware of even higher levels of happiness. And it's once we become aware of a higher level of happiness, a more subtle level of happiness, then it's quite easy to let go of the coarse level of happiness. And so in this practice, There is this natural progress of the mind being attached to a coarse level of happiness, then through meditation beginning to be aware of a higher level of happiness. Then the mind lets go of the lower level and attaches to the higher level until it becomes aware of an even higher level of happiness. And then lets go of the lower level to go up to this new higher level. And this can go on and on up until the point where the mind finally learns that the best happiness is to not attach to any kind of happiness. The next point to make is that this practice of mindfulness of breathing should be done one step at a time, one by one. We don't jump around. From step to step. It's not like, well, today I'm going to do all 16 steps, or this week I do the first four, next week the next four, and then I go back later. Or we don't just look through our notes and decide which step interests us today. We take them one by one. This is because that that evolution of the mind that I've talked about, is a natural progression and the practice of mindfulness of breathing is based on that natural progression. And to make the most of this and to understand that natural development, it's best to follow anapanasati as as it has been taught, which is do step one first after you are completely expert in step one, after you've learned everything you can learn from step one, after you know it fully and there's no problems whatsoever, then go on to step two. And then practice step two until you're an expert at step two and have learned everything you can from it. Then go on to step three not a little step one, a little step two, a little of step three, a little of step four, and then go back to step one for a while, and then a little more step two. This is very inefficient, and we'll tend to get very confused, and we'll make very slow progress. This, we all have this tendency, it seems, because of some of the points I mentioned earlier, our lack of patience, maybe because we we have an urge to compete with ourselves or with others, whatever, we're we're often never satisfied with where we are. We always want to get somewhere else. And so it, it would do us well to control that urge. So practice these steps one at a time and follow them, stick with each step until you've become an expert at that step. Related to this is the point that each sitting is new. Each time you sit down to practice, begin with step one. Now, for all of us at this point, that's nothing difficult because we're all practicing step one anyway. But imagine that after a few weeks or or whatever, a few months we have become expert at step one then every time you sit down you still begin with step one and then practice it a while until you it's clear in the mind okay I'm still an expert at step one then go on to step two and then work on step two for days weeks however long it takes When step two is perfected, then one can go on to step three. But always you begin at step one, do it. You begin each setting, sitting with step one. Practice it until there is the certainty that we are expert at this step one. Then go on to step two and and review it until we're certain again that we are expert at step two. And then from there we can go on to step three. So each sitting begins with step 1 and goes through each step. But this is for later now. <laughs> when you're working on when you're legitimately working on steps 2 and 3. But for now it's quite simple, just work on step 1. Another important point about this practice is that this is a practice of non-attachment. The Buddha taught the middle way, and the practice of mindfulness of breathing is nothing but the middle way. To do it properly, it must be a practice of non-attachment, of non-attachment, not detachment, where you're pushing things away, but non-attachment, when there's no egoistic identification. So be very careful about sitting down with, I am meditating, I am meditating, I am meditating, or my breathing, my breathing, my breathing, my happy feelings, and things like this. Learn to let go of these attached feelings or ideas of I and mine. Learn to just stay balanced in the practice. Drop these egoistic identification. The middle way is also a practice of correctness, of being correct and right in the way one lives. And this can also be developed in mindfulness of breathing, that the while practicing this, there is it's a way of life that is correct and by correct we mean that no harm is done to either ourselves or to others and so as we establish ourselves in this mind in this practice of mindfulness of breathing we also establish ourselves in the middle way in correctness in a way of living that is balanced where we're not getting caught up in this extreme or that extreme, in any of the dualities or things like this. Now, for most of us, attachment is a long-established habit, and if we could drop it like that, we would all be enlightened like that. But for most of us, we have to work on letting go of our attachments and so we can see mindfulness of breathing as a way of letting go of attachments. Right now, many of we have a lot of crude, coarse attachments. We begin to let go of them. Mainly, we can let go of our our agitation, our impatience, and our attachment to the body, to pains and aches, little and un- petty annoyances we can begin to let go of these coarse attachments, and then we will find ourselves attaching to more subtle things, such as those happy feelings that we've talked about. And we can learn to let go of those, and then we find ourselves attaching to those, to the higher states of mind that we begin to be aware of, the more clear and bright states of awareness. And then we learn to let go of those and we begin begin to have insight into truth and we attach to those insights. But finally, eventually, we learn to let go of even those things. So we can see mindfulness of breathing as a systematic way to help the mind to let go of coarser attachments and then let go of the more the less coarse attachments and then the more subtle ones until finally there is no attachment at all. The last background point that I would like to make is that patience is a very, very necessary spiritual tool. Many of us are used to judging ourselves and measuring ourselves against various standards. Some of us might be quite competitive and judge ourselves according to others. Others of us judge ourselves according to various ideals we have. Many people, when they hear about these 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing, begin to judge themselves according to these 16 steps. And they figure that they must be a better person if they're practicing step four than if they're practicing step one. So everybody wants to practice step four, and then five, and then six. I think that that kind of thinking won't do you much good. Don't don't measure your progress according to these 16 steps. Measure progress according to the development of spiritual qualities. Spiritual qualities like mindfulness. Spiritual qualities like energy understanding, wisdom, caring, friendliness, faith, balance. These kind of qualities will be growing in the meditation practice. Even if you're still working on step one, even if you work on it for the rest of your life, these spiritual qualities will grow, and that's what matters getting to step 16 isn't so important. In fact, step one can be enough. This, the thing about enlightenment is that it's unconditioned. So you never know when it's going to happen. It might even happen during step one. So you don't have to be in a hurry to get on to step two or three or whatever. Step one might be enough if you just do it right. Do it with patience, with wisdom, with balance, with clarity. So really develop patience. And you'll find that the more you can develop patience using the practice of mindfulness of breathing or any meditation practice, that that patience will really benefit you in living a life that is clear, clean, and happy. So be very, very patient. Learn to sit still. Learn to just keep plugging away at step one. And then do step one properly, and don't be in a hurry. With patience, the mind will get somewhere as long as there is impatience to get on to the next step, you can be almost certain that you're learning almost nothing. So, not almost nothing, but you're learning much less than if there was not that impatience getting in the way. So these are some background points that are worth remembering. Mindfulness of breathing trains the four dhamma comrades and perfects the four foundations of mindfulness. The practice of mindfulness of breathing is a way of studying and nurturing and supporting a natural development of the mind. And this natural development in the practice are somewhat separate, and we need to be aware of that difference. The steps of mindfulness of breathing must be practiced one at a time. In doing so, mindfulness of breathing is the practice of the middle way. It is a practice of non-attachment. And last of all, patience is a very, very important spiritual quality which will help the practice to develop and will bring us great peace in our lives. Now I'd like to use the remaining time to talk about some basic points about the actual practice, about what we actually need to be doing. And I'm going to start at the very beginning. First, we have a few preparatory arrangements to make. Basically, finding a suitable place to meditate. Find the best place that is reasonable. But if the best place you can find is a five-hour drive from your house, then it may not be so good. So, find a place that is as, which is reasonable, accessible, and that will allow you to practice regularly, daily. You may, everybody ought to have one place in their home that is suitable for meditation. You also might find a place in a nearby park or church or some quiet place that would be useful to go to sometimes when you are able. You might even find a place at work that is suitable for meditation. Or when you're traveling, wherever you go, keep an eye open for good places to meditate. Keep this in mind. So we need to find a suitable place to meditate. Not perfect, but good enough. And then we make the most of what we can find. We need to have a good, time to, a good time to meditate. Often the early morning is a very good time before the day starts, before we get involved in all kinds of busy things. It can also be good to meditate in the evening, especially if we've had a busy day of work or travel or play or whatever. It will help us to wind down and get get under control again. But we don't have to lock into certain times. It can be useful to have a set time daily to meditate, but we can also practice mindfulness of breathing at other times during the day. So be, be alert to suitable times for practice. And a third thing that needs to be prepared is our physical health. Being in reasonably good health, we don't have to be Olympic athletes, but being in reasonably good health will make the practice easier. This can involve things like giving up smoking or smoking less. It will be much easier to breathe gently, and relaxed, practicing yoga or tai chi or some useful form of exercise that keeps the body in good shape, or doing physical labor of some sort, all these kind of things that keep the body in good health, and then eating properly, sleeping properly, living a balanced lifestyle so that the body is in good shape are very, very important, or very useful for mindfulness of breathing, especially at the beginning. Once we're experienced, we can continue meditating no matter how sick the body is. But when we're beginning, it's much easier if the body is in good shape. The same goes for mental health. If you've got really strong neuroses or psychoses, these can get in the way of a meditation practice. If you can use the meditation practice to come to terms with certain mental illnesses that we all tend to have, that's fine. Or you may seek some other kind of help as well. So, have find appropriate places, appropriate times, and maintain good health. These will provide a good context for the meditation practice. Next, we talk about posture. I've seen in magazines that cater to people that meditate all kinds of expensive carpets and mats and pillows and cushions and chairs that you can do all kinds of things with. And then, those may be of use. But in meditating, the simpler the better. If we can learn to just sit on the ground, wherever, whatever kind of ground, that's the best. The Buddha would just go somewhere, scrape up a couple leaves, lay a cloth, a cloth across it and sit. He wasn't lugging around pillows and, and burlap bags and all kinds of stuff like that. A few of these implements can be useful, but do your best to keep things simple. Or if you've begun with a big pile of cushions this big, then work on lowering it a little bit to make make things simple. Because in the end, the best kind of posture for meditation is a very, very simple cross-legged posture like this where your, your rear end is firm upon the ground, not way high up in the air. And then if you can, after that, learn to sit in a half lotus. That's even more stable. And then best of all, if your clothes don't get in the way, learn to sit in a full lotus because then the underside of your calves are firm apro- across on the ground and it's very easy to sit up straight so that the spinal cord is straight. So all the vertebrae sit on top of each other very snugly. And when you learn to sit like this, then it's very stable, very relaxing. And the, the breathing can flow very smoothly, the blood and the various kinds of energy within the body, it all can flow smoothly. Now, it may take a few years for some of our bodies to adapt to a full lotus. That's okay. You don't have to force it, but it's really worth developing a good meditation posture. It may not come immediately, but after a while, with patience, and effort, we can learn to sit in a full lotus. And if, if you're interested in really de- developing deep levels of concentration, you have to have a posture like a full lotus, otherwise you'll, you'll, fall, you'll fall over when the mind becomes one-pointed. And then you probably won't be one-pointed anymore when your head hits the floor. So, work at developing a good posture, a simple position for the hands, keep the back straight, be comfortable, and relax. So now we've got our place, our time, and we're, we've got our posture. So we're sitting, in a reasonably quiet place, there's enough air movement so we don't get, we don't asphyxiate ourselves. The thing to do is to begin by establishing mindfulness, establishing sati. And the way Ajahn Buddhadasa suggested to do that is to do what is called following or chasing the breath. So now I'm going to describe a series of things you can do. And it's my understanding that this is the simple, about the simplest way to do it, and it's most appropriate for the majority of people. You may find, especially if you have previous meditation experience, that there are slight variations will work better for you. That's okay, but I'm going to give one series of things as a recommendation and then you can experiment with them if you need to. But it may not be necessary to experiment at all. So we sit, we begin to follow the breathing. The breathing begins at the tip of the nose and comes into the body and then goes out in and out when we talk about following the breathing it's mindfulness sati just chases the breath in follows it out chases it in chases it out follows it in follows it out now some of us when we begin breathing our breaths are very short we're only breathing with our chest so then in this case Sati will only come in a certain amount, and then it goes back out. But just have a very simple movement of in and out, in and out, with sati, following the breath. Some of us, as we begin to be aware of the breathing, will notice that actually there's a lot happening at once, and in some ways, it may seem quite complex. That's okay, but this following of the breathing, keep it simple. Don't don't sort of do a following that tries to cover every every movement in each breath. Just have a general sweeping movement of in and out. Even though the the diaphragm is doing this, the abdomen's doing that, the lungs are doing this, and the nose is doing whatever it's doing. Don't try and follow all of those or be jumping around. Just establish a very smooth and easy flow of in and out. At the beginning, there are a few things that will help us in keeping the mind on the breath. One is to gaze at the tip of your nose. While we're practicing, our attention doesn't have to be on the eyes. We don't intentionally put our intention, our attention to the eyes. But because we don't have complete control over the mind at this point, the mind will often go to the eyes and, and start looking at things. If we've developed the habit of having the eyes gaze at the tip of the nose, then every time the mind goes to see what the eyes are doing, then it goes, it sees the nose, and then it remembers what it's supposed to be doing. This can be very, very useful. Even if you close your eyes, you can still have the eyeballs generally gazing towards the tip of the nose. This is an aid to establishing mindfulness on the breathing. Another aid is when you begin, breathe loudly. Breathe loud enough so you hear your breath. Then not only do you have your eyes, but your ears are helping to be mindful of the breath. This breathing loudly will work very, is very useful at the beginning and at the beginning of each sitting. As the breath becomes calm, you will naturally drop this loud breathing. But when you begin, or any period of time where you find it very difficult to establish mindfulness, you can breathe loudly. Another technique is to count. You can see what we're doing is we're really ganging up on the, on the breath. We're using all these different ways to direct attention to the breath. And so there's the, the eyes, the ears, and now we can bring in the intellect, the counting. So each in-breath is one, two, three, four. You can count that way, or you can count one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three or if they're longer breaths, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you can count in these various ways, and that will help to establish mindfulness. Once mindfulness is already established, you may find the counting unnecessary and you can drop it. But at the beginning especially, it can be very, very useful. So we start off by establishing mindfulness, by training sati, Just chasing the breath in and out, sitting and doing this for hours, chasing it in and out, in and out. Once it begins, it becomes possible to follow the breath fairly well. The mind is still wandering, but not not too often, and not it doesn't go off somewhere for too long a period of time. Once there is fairly decent following of the breath, then we can begin to be interested in long and short breathing. This is something that I've been somewhat confused about for a long time, but I've finally got it figured out. And since my translation earlier was a bit unclear, I'll I'll repeat the difference between long and short breathing. Most people breathe only with their chests. If you watch your breathing, you'll find that the chest is moving a lot and the abdomen isn't moving very much. This kind of breathing is short breathing. When we just breathe with our chest, we don't have very much capacity to bring in air. So if you're only breathing with your chest, that's short breathing. We can learn, and I guess many yogis teach this, to breathe with the abdomen. And for the practice of mindfulness of breathing, it is to breathe long, it is necessary to breathe with the abdomen. So what I'm going to say now has only to do with abdominal breathing, not chest breathing. If you're breathing with your chest only, then it's only short breathing and you won't even be able to do step one. But even if we're only used to breathing with our chest, it's not that difficult to learn to breathe with the abdomen. Now, when we breathe with the abdomen, as we take in air, the diaphragm drops. As the diaphragm drops, the abdomen, the tummy, begins to expand. And then after it expands, we breathe out, and the abdomen comes in a bit. This is abdominal breathing but it is still short if there is only the movement of the abdomen coming out and in out in, out with the in breath and in with the out breath we say that that is short breathing now if you've been breathing like this a while and you learn to extend it to where the abdomen comes out And then you take in even more air. What you'll find is there will be a limit for the abdomen to come out. This is when the lower lungs are full and the diaphragm has come down as much as possible. So the abdomen is expanded as much as possible. If we want to take in more air, it has to be taken in in the upper chest so as the upper chest takes in air and expands, this pulls up the whole front of the body. And so the abdomen that had come out now raises up. This is on the in-breath. On the out-breath, once these, the upper chest is expanded, on the out-breath, then this will drop down. and then the air comes out. So, the long breath is the short breath plus a little more. They're not completely separate. This means that in a long breath, first you have the short breath of the abdomen expanding, then you have the the part that we call the long breath where it comes up. This means that if your breathing has only, is the simple process of the abdomen expanding and then contracting with almost no movement in the chest, then that is short breathing. Long breathing is where there is, the abdomen expands, then the chest expands and the, the abdomen comes up. So this is the difference between the two. Many of us will find that our normal breathing is short. For almost all of us the normal breathing is short. This may be a bit of a surprise for some of you who have heard things the other way around. But the normal breathing is generally short. A short breath can actually take maybe as long as five or ten seconds, depending on how slow and gradual it is. So, this is a definition of the long and short breathing, which I hope is clear. If you're only breathing with your chest, that's short. If it's long, there is the movement in the abdomen and then in the chest as well. From following the breathing, you can learn to breathe more deeply so that the breaths are longer and longer. And then after a while, your breath, you may realize that your breathing is short. Not very short, but relatively short. But through, through learning to gradually and slowly extend the breath, we learn to take in more air in a relaxed way. Please don't force it. And then after a while we begin to learn how to breathe long. So first following the breath, then learn how to breathe long. Once you're breathing long, and still following the breath, then you're doing step one. In following the breath and learning how to breathe long, this may take a little while, but once you have developed mindfulness of the breathing by following the breath, you will automatically have learned quite a bit about the long breathing. And then all you need to do is study it a while longer until you are clear about the various things that Ajahn Buddha Dasa pointed out in his earlier talk. Here's I have a question that each of you can ask yourselves regularly. Every time you wonder if you have been doing step one long enough, then ask yourself, can you sit for an hour or maybe two hours completely relaxed, at ease, and without any desire to recross the legs or anything like that. If you can sit for more than an hour like that, relaxed, then maybe you have finished step one. But if if you're still moving every 20 minutes, half hour, 40, 40 minutes or so, then you really aren't doing the long breathing. Because when the breathing is really long and smooth and peaceful, then the body is relaxed and there's no problem sitting for long periods of time. So in step one, really learn how to make the breaths long, slow, gentle, and smooth. And then in step one, you'll learn how to sit for long periods of time with ease. If you're still jumpy, then don't even think about step two. So keep doing this, working on following the breath and lengthening it. And in doing so you'll learn many, many things about step one. You'll become very clear what the long breath is. And you'll also learn how it influences the body. When you can follow the breath, and the breaths are really long and you know them well, Then you can go on to step two. Step two is where we take the short breathing as our object. It's possible that at this time you have learned a lot about the short breathing already, because in learning how to breathe long, you also had to do a lot of short breathing. And so you know quite a bit about the short breathing as well. So at this point, If you know the long breathing well enough already, then you can come and study the short breathing and confirm what you have already learned indirectly while doing the previous parts of the practice. So in step two, take the short breathing specifically as the object. You no longer have to try to make the breathing long. You've already learned how to do that where you can make the breathing longer and longer. Now in step two, take the short breathing as the object and get to know it really well. Once the short breathing is known really well, when you know what makes the breathing short, what makes it long, what the long breathing feels like, what the short breathing feels like, what influences the different kinds of breathing have on the body and you can still follow the breathing in and out, in and out. You're getting, as you go, you're getting even better and better at following the breath, in and out, in and out, to the point where the mind is barely wandering at all. It still goes off a little bit now and then, but it doesn't go off for long periods of time. Then it's, after knowing the long and short breathing very, very well, where you're very expert at this knowledge, Then you can go on to step three. Step three is where we note the influence of the breathing upon the body. You've already learned quite a bit about this indirectly. You haven't really focused your attention on the influence of the long breaths or short breaths, but you've naturally become aware of quite a few things it would be impossible not to. But so far, you have focused your attention on the longness of the breaths or the shortness of the breaths. And that's all. But in step three, now you begin to focus your attention on the influence of the long breaths in the short breaths. So breathe long and pay very close attention what influence that has on the body. How do those long flex, long breaths affect the body? And then breathe short. Breathe, you can breathe very, very short, almost hyperventilating, but don't do it for very long or you'll get sick. You can breathe relatively short, a second or two for each breath, or you can breathe short to the point where it's almost long, but not quite. And see what affects the short breathing has on the body. What effect the very short, the medium short, and the, the not-so-short breathing has upon the body. Also used, in this case, not only use the long and short breathing, but see the uh, influence of smooth breathing and coarse breathing, or gentle breathing and rough breathing when you breathe fast, and when you breathe slow. See how these different types of breath influence the body. All of these things you will have seen to some degree in steps one and two, but in step three, this is studied directly, exclusively, especially this influence of the different kinds of breath upon the physical body. In doing so, you will come across certain types of breathing that calm the body. You'll come across certain kinds of breathing that make the body very, very relaxed. And so at this point, you'll know what kind of breathing is necessary to allow the body to sit for long periods of time for maybe a few hours where you don't have to recross your legs or get up or or scratch or anything so step 3 is getting to know this influence remember each sitting you begin with step 1 so let's imagine we have perfected steps 1 and 2 and then we come down we go to the meditation hall or the corner of our house where we meditate and we, we're gonna go, we're gonna sit down and practice step three. But first we start with step one and make sure we're still an expert at step one. Practice step one until it's clear that we still know how to do it. Then go on to step two and make sure we can still do that. Then go to step three. In doing so, When you're doing step one, just think about step one. Don't think about, well, in five minutes I'm going on to step two. Just do step one. Once there's the awareness, oh, okay, I've got this down right, then think about, okay, step two, what does that mean? Then do step two. And then don't think about step three until after you've done step two. Learn to keep the mind on what you're doing. And then maybe one day step three has been fulfilled and perfected. So it's time for step four. By this time, when we we can sit down and be very relaxed, sit for long periods of time, this following of the breath is very skillful. So what we do in step four is we really perfect that following of the breath where we can follow the breath in and out, where the mind doesn't wander at all, where the mind just stays with the breath in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, without wandering at all. When following the breath has been perfected, then find that point in the nose. There's one point in the nose where you feel the breath more easily than anywhere else. The, the incoming breath and the outcoming breath. Once following the breath has been perfected, then guard the breath at that point somewhere in the nose or maybe on the upper lip, as was described. Keep the mind at that point. If you, if the mind is so well-trained that it can follow the breath in and out, in and out, it will be quite easy for the mind to just stop on one point. That will not be difficult because the mind has already been very well-trained. But those of you who have maybe tried to do this at this point will find it difficult because the mind has not been well-trained yet. But if steps one, two, and three have been practiced properly and then we perfect following at the beginning of step four it will not be so difficult or it will be quite easy to bring the mind to that one point or for mindfulness to be on guard at that one point in the nose with mindfulness on that one point then we really begin to work at calming the breath And the way to calm the breath is to bring the mind completely to that point. The way to calm the breath is for the mind to focus on that point, to concentrate on that point fully. And this is the essential part of step four. There are the various mental images we've talked about. Those are tools which can help you in calming the breath but as we've as i've emphasized today don't be in a hurry be patient if some of those mental images arise then use them but if they don't come then don't worry about it just keep working with that point So I've said so far what, most of what I intended to say. I've done my best to emphasize especially step one, because that's where most of us need to be working. At this retreat, we've given you a great deal of information, and at times you may not have been able to absorb it all. So, consider what you've gotten in these ten days as a start. You all ought to know at least how to practice step one properly, have a good idea about the first four steps, should have a clear idea about the practice of the first four steps, and have a general idea of all sixteen steps. This will give you a good start and, be, and help you to stay on the right path. If you don't have this information, you may very easily wander off into, into dead ends. So we've tried to give you a, a good beginning, both in practice and in theory. You'll need to follow this up by reading books, by talking with other meditators, especially experienced meditators, and maybe by attending other retreats or spending time in monasteries or meditation centers. Follow this, this information up in whatever way is convenient and useful for you. But let me point something out to you. In this world, There are many, many different kinds of meditation techniques, and so that means there are lots of meditators who are not practicing mindfulness of breathing. There are even different ways of doing mindfulness of breathing. So, when you start reading a book by this or that meditation teacher, find out what meditation technique they're using. Many people go and read a book by so-and-so who is doing a technique much different than the technique we're practicing, and then when you go and try and apply some of the things in that book, you can get very confused. Some of the things in that book are general to all meditation practices, but some are specific to only the meditation practice that that one person is doing. So you have to find this out. Otherwise, you will confuse yourself. If you attend other retreats, I'm not saying, I don't think it's necessary to only attend retreats at Suan Mok. But if you're going to a place where some a slightly different or a very different technique is taught, keep things straight. Keep it keep it clear in your mind. This is mindfulness of breathing, as taught at Suan Mok, and this other person is teaching somewhat different. You can learn a lot from that if you keep things clear and separate. But if you take everything you hear from different teachers, different books, different meditators, and jumble it all together we cannot guarantee that you will get anywhere. If you stick with mindfulness of breathing and follow it properly, you will get somewhere. And I believe that that the same can be said for many different meditation techniques. But when we take different things and lump them together, it's very difficult to predict what will happen. So please follow up the information you've gotten here. You're welcome to stay here as long as you want. Listen to the tapes of Ajahn Buddhadasa's talks and talk with each other or follow up in other ways. But keep things clear. Know what is what and don't confuse them. Last, I'd like to end with three short little warnings or bits of advice. First is don't play games. Many of us really like to play games. It's fun. We like to entertain ourselves. We like to to play around with things. We often find it difficult to be serious about anything or to apply ourselves to anything. But if you're going to use this meditation technique, don't play games with it. Use it wisely. Take it seriously. Not with a frown on your face, but a happy kind of seriousness. It's something really valuable. It deserves your respect and honor. So give it that respect and honor. Don't just te- don't treat it like a toy or a joke. If you do, if you make it into a game, if it's just playing, you may not get very far but i'm not saying don't you know don't go around frowning and and hitting yourself over the head or anything enjoy it but it's it needs to be done in a spirit of respect and honor second follow the instructions you've been able to hear the instructions from somebody who's been practicing anapanasati for for almost 60 years and who knows this technique better than probably anybody else who's alive on this planet. He knows what he's talking about. We don't. So listen to what Ajahn Buddhadasa has has told us. You may find it necessary at times to make adaptions, and it's not wrong to experiment, but Try not to wander too far from the basic instructions that you have been given. And last of all, practice wisdom. Any meditation practice is aimed at developing wisdom. Buddhism is all about developing knowledge of the way things are. This is what we mean by wisdom, to see the truth of things. So practice wisely, do things wisely. Develop wisdom from the very start. Approach this with patience, that is wisdom, with balance, give it the necessary energy, respect and consideration, and don't attach. (laughs) And then we'll be practicing wisdom from the start and then this practice will, will probably help us to really grow in wisdom. So I hope this information will be useful and that it will be very clear to each of you what you need to be doing, especially in step one. I wish you all success in this practice and hope that you can use it to Successfully liberate the mind from attachment and dukkha and then help to bring peace into our confused world. Thank you.